I am Plata of the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Wayne McCrory joins me now. He's just published a new book, The Wild Horses of the Chilcotin, Their History and Future. It's a, also a beautifully illustrated book, one that looks at the controversial horses in British Columbia's Chilcotin. They're also viewed as romantic and beautiful, but to a lot of ranchers in the province, they're seen as intruders. And Wayne does a fine job in the book chronicling how governments have viewed them, subjecting the wild horses to culls as they're uh, seen as invasive species and harmful to domestic cattle, uh, even though they've been part of this uh, part of the world for hundreds of years. Mr. McCrory also presents his over 20 years of research looking at the genetics of these wild horses, evolving to the point where they should be considered domestic. Wayne also looks at um, the work by the Tsilkotin Nation, as well as uh, friends of the Nimaya Valley and the Valhalla Wilderness Society. Wayne McCrory is a registered professional biologist specializing in uh, the study of wild horses, bears, and western toads. He has published more than 90 scientific reports on wildlife and conservation. This new book is from Harbor Publishing. He lives in Hills in British Columbia's uh, Slocan Valley, where he joined me from a couple of weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Wayne McCrory. Mr. McCrory, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, the, the, I, I, we were talking just before we started um, about the book and, and how beautifully designed it is. The photographs are just so beautifully rendered. Um, what is it like to hold the book after, say, these many years writing it? Um, it must be nice to look at. <laughs> I was in... I don't know how you call it, because uh, it's the first book I've ever written. I've, I've written lots of wildlife reports and stuff, but when these four boxes showed up on my report front porch one day um, on our property in the Slocan Valley, I was I was almost afraid to open it. I was, <laughs> I was stunned. That, like, you mean it's actually done after 20 years? And, yeah. So it was wonderful to actually hold it and see it and see how it came together so beautifully and you know I had some earlier on I was uh, pursuing the idea of um, self-publishing and that had a lot of problems I actually had a, a mock-up partly done by a company and and so when we talked to Harbor Publishing um, to Howard Smith and, and their editor Anna uh-huh. um to explore them doing the book, um, I had some reservations. So I didn't want to lose control. And uh, Howard said, you know, if, if we do the book, we'll make it better than you ever imagined. And when I saw the product and looked through it, and I start, actually started reading it and was enjoying it from a non-writer just, you know, trying to <laughs> yeah. something outside of my writer science self, I was just stunned about how wonderful it came together and what a fabulous team Harbor had in terms of their main editors and uh, photo editors and editors for the um, for the citations uh-huh. and everything else that documented all of the science and quotes in the book and so yeah it's uh, it's wonderful the um, the thing that I'm enjoying as I'm reading the book is is um, because this is a culmination of as you write in the book 20 years of research on your part. Um, I'm finding fascinating, Wayne, the the evolution in your own thinking. 
which you document in the book. What are some of the, 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 the changes that have gone on, say, in your mind as to wild horses um, over the years? I mean, it, it, you, you did change your mind on, on, on a number of yeah, aspects, well, right? Well, when I grew up here, of course, you always became fascinated. I, I knew some old ranchers and miners and trappers here in the, in the village in New Denver. They were sort of uh, mountain men, in my opinion, and yeah. there was an old rancher from the Chilcotin, so I got interested in Chilcotin cowboy stories, and of course, read about wild horses, and they're all inter- inbred alien varmints that, <laughs> you know, the Mustangers were shooting off and getting bounty hunts, and so uh, uh, as a boy, you, you develop this uh, impression that, uh, not knowing any better, that all of these horses are bad and destroying the range. And yeah. and then when I was, um, after I got out of university with an honors degree in zoology and wildlife management, I decided to learn more about the world. So I ended up living in the Galapagos Islands just after it was a national park reserve. Uh-huh. And I lived with an old European couple on their farm who were actually some of the first conservationists I ever met. But what I found, because I work with different film crews and uh, help different science, scientists there, was the feral animals were, were destroying all of this rare and, you know, fragile habitat for Galapagos uh, finches and all of these things documented by Charles Darwin. So it was horribly upsetting, and of course it's just been created as a national park, and and I was one of the few, uh, you know, range eco- I'd taken range ecology at university as one of my courses and worked for the Canadian Wildlife Service on range studies. So I, I had a better eye for habitat destruction than some of the, the international scientists there. So we talked about, you know, the goat problem, but I was more upset than them. So I came back and started a little writing, letter writing campaign to UNESCO about eradicating the goats. And of course, since then they've had major programs with, uh-huh. with some success. But I even the farm I lived at needed meat, so I used to hunt them and for, <laughs> for meat. I used to take a donkey out with the 22 and and get meat for the old couple at the farm, and felt like I was helping things a little way. So. Many years went by, and I never really paid much attention. That I didn't even know Canada had, you know, still had wild horses. I thought they were all gone. So right. I had this um, contract to study grizzly bears up in uh, Hunnigutin First Nations territory, and I get there, and I'm driving in with a biologist friend, and the f- first we see a grizzly out know, in the grasslands, and then we see these horses, and I go, "What the hell are they?" Yeah. Doing out here, they look wild, you know. They were away from any ranches, so so I walked around. Do, we we did most of our surveys uh, hiking on horse trails, and we used to see them, and they were very beautiful, handsome animals. Because um, and uh, I couldn't believe um, that they were still there, however. But I, I started looking around. And I thought, well, I don't see all the riparian damage and. I don't see any overgrazing, and they seem to fit into the ecosystem. And you know, but I was still holding out that these didn't belong in the ecosystem yeah. and be eradicated, and wonder why they weren't. 
And uh, then I started wondering how long have they been here, and I'd see these all old horse bones and skulls with lichen growing on them, and and light bulbs started going off of my head, like they seem to belong here, but do they? And, of course, I was working with some of the Chilcotin knowledge keepers and started learning about their deep cultural relationship to the horses and the fact that they felt they belonged in the ecosystem and they were happy they were there and they were there before the white man came. So um, slowly my um, anti-feral uh, views started to modify and then I had a beautiful dream one night that's uh, in my book about some journey I was on and um, a big stone horse blocking my way and it's kind of a mysterious dream uh-huh. and that sort of I thought hmm you know that I listened to my dreams um, why am I having this dream it seems to be trying to message me something about the horses and then one beautiful spring evening we ran into a band of uh, beautiful band of horses with some newborn foals and and a beautiful evening and they they ended up charging us twice yeah you know I was petrified yeah yeah and and I, I realized they, they had a beautiful wild spirit, and they'd been here for hundreds of years, and why, why, are, why am I thinking they're still so alien? And, and so, so I started reading, doing my research, and the research uh, told me many things that I didn't know that countered what I'd learned from their early cowboy books. And the more I dug... Uh, deeper I dug, the more I found, and the more fascinating it became. And yeah. so we started doing genetic research, and, and uh, I recommended the Wild Horse Preserve um, uh, to protect this area threatened by logging, and the Huntington created that because of their deep uh, values associated with the horse. And, and so as time went on, and that's what my book is about, is my explorations of the science, and doing our own original research, and looking at their evolution, and finally realizing that, you know, they evolved in North America, went extinct at the, about 5,000 years ago, and mm-hmm. that they're a returned native species, they're not alien at all, you know, yeah. all the cattle out in the Chilcotin are the alien species and the ones that are really harming the range. So, yeah. So, so that's a, yeah, so, so it, 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 one wonders then um, why, um, because cause the, 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 uh, the views that a lot of people have, um, that they are an alien species or they're not, um, um, you know, they're not naturally occurring in this part of the world. Um, I, I guess that there aren't laws to protect them, are there? No, the laws were first formulated by our colonial governments, uh, government in B.C., not too long after, you know, a lot of the grasslands were preempted by immigrant, uh, immigrants from the States and Europe. Um, it was mostly from the States um, after the Chilcotin, uh, the Caribou Chilcotin, uh, Caribou Gold Rush of, 1868, I think, um, 1858, mm-hmm. um, you know, they brought in a lot of cattle to feed the miners, and then they saw all this beautiful grassland that um, was really 
land belonging to First Nations, but to them didn't belong to anybody. Um, being a settler rancher culture from the U.S., uh, where they were, you know, driving a lot of the First Nations off the, the interior grasslands. So, so anyhow, there was a very quick uh, settlement and takeover at the grasslands for cattle ranching and thousands of cattle driven up through the Okanagan on the Fur Brigade Trail. And, and then I think 1873, they, you know, they felt the horses were um, the ones destroying the range and competing with their cattle, and so along with the, they passed the Wild Horse Eradication Act. Mm -hmm. And so different acts were passed over time that, um, that allowed them and bounty hunters to uh, eliminate most of the horses from our interior grasslands. And, um, you know, while, while the cattle, when you, when you look at the research and what uh, early range uh, ecologists found, it's really the cattle that were causing the damage, but it was easy to scapegoat the horses and yeah. not deal with the cow problem. So, so today there's sort of, the, in B.C. and Alberta, they sort of come under, under the um, Livestock Acts, and Alberta they're, come under the Stray Domestic Horse Act, which allows them to be legally removed from the range. And in B.C., they um, have another statute with the same thing. So that's what led to these so-called legal bounty hunts over a long time. And what my book recommends is, uh, you know, they need to be recognized as an um, integral part of the ecosystems that uh, uh -huh. evolved in North America and um, accepted as key ecological components of our last grassland ecosystems where they still live and have full legislated uh, protection provincially and federally that recognizes them as a, as a distinct um, species that belongs and um, a, a valuable heritage species and uh, also the laws need to incorporate First Nations governance mm. because they always um, have their own traditional laws that protected and conserved the wild horses as, you know, for domestic use in the rich part of their culture. Yeah, that's what you document in the book is the relationship with um, especially the uh, Sakotan Nation, um, how, how much they, they revere and, and value and um, utilize these horses the way they do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There wouldn't be any horses left if it wasn't for First Nation. So, yeah. yeah. And they have, they've created, mm -hmm. as a result of my first report, and it's solidified by our later genetic studies that documented that most of the Chilcotin wild horses are um, Spanish Iberians, uh, the original horses of conquest that were spread across the Americas and arrived in uh, the northern Rockies and BC in the early to mid 1600s. So the horses have been around a long time. Yeah, so I guess they, they are they, they are domestic <laughs> in, in a sense. Um, what, what what's also fascinating in your book, Wayne, is is um, how you illustrate 
how they survive. I mean, the, the, these are the winter conditions up up in the Chilcotin that, that are harsh. Um, and there are other creatures like bears and lions that, that they have to coexist among. So it's a, um, in terms of, say, um, they're natural predators, if you will. I guess lions, that would be key there. Do they get along with bears, say? Yeah, the bears don't seem to trouble them too much. Uh, that was really interesting. Uh-huh. Um, there's probably a bit of predation, but the bears, bears are fortunately mostly uh, vegetarian. Uh, they're opportunistic predators. Uh, unlike the other large carnivores, um, the wolves and the mountain lions, which are, you know, they're pretty much meat eaters, so yeah. they depend on uh, finding carrion or preying on uh, what it, rabbits or deer or horses when they can. So, yeah. And, of course, uh, the horses have coexisted, evolved, <laughs> In North America, over 50 million years to different, you know, periods of the Earth um, with predators and predator-prey ecosystems. So um, the fact that they're um, living in the Chilcotin with wolves, they uh, evolved in the um, during the late Pleistocene in the northern Yukon with the same species of wolf. The wolf didn't go extinct after the last ice age, but the Yukon horse did, and the Yukon horse uh, evolved in North America and, and uh, northern Yukon in an ice-free refugia is the actual same species as the horse today. So, um, yeah, so they're just living in the ecosystem the way they have for tens of thousands of years in North America. What have you found, Wayne, in terms of, because I mentioned the weather a moment ago, how um, these wild horses are able to survive in such harsh winter conditions. Um, they do it together, don't they? I mean, there is a great connection between them, and, and that instinct to survive, I guess, is part of their relationships with one another. Is that right? Yeah, well, they are um, sort of like elk. They are herding animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, um, but they have a different social structure. They have a alpha female um, mare who's a dominant mare and probably the true leader of the of the the, her, the individual herds, which usually number ten to twelve, the family herds, and um, a lead stallion, and then a bunch of mares and whatever. The, the young males get booted out of the the nucleus group and mm-hmm. they form bachelor stands. So band, so they have, um, you know, keeping together um, like that um, is a good protection against predators. Uh, if they're attacked, um, you know, they probably draw in their foals and and protect them against predators when they can, and also. Just in terms of foraging in the winter, you know, if there's real deep snow, a herd of horses opening up the trails to the meadows where they feed or cratering is, is going to be less work than one individual struggling out there on the land, as moose and deer sometimes do. Yeah. And, and what the First Nations taught me, and we've sort of seen that, is when there's lots of wolves around, the different individual family bands will aggregate into groups of up to 
70 or 100, uh, apparently in protection against the wolves and stuff. So it's, uh, you know, stuff we see from the outside, we can't prove from the inside, but it's all a fascinating adaptation to uh, extreme uh, winters and survival conditions. And that's what makes them so powerful and strong and uh, healthy. Yeah, and, and in terms of, say, um, when it's not as cold, in the summer especially with wildfires and the sort, um, what, what have you seen in terms of their behavior in, 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 in those challenging times, say? Well, <laughs> it's hard to say. You know, you, you can't be inside a wildfire to see what the wildlife are doing, but we did... Um, we had two bands when we started uh, studying there that lived in our main core study area. One was called the Chestnut Stallion Band or the Bay Stallion Band and the Black Stallion Band, and they sort of kept separate. Um, and then a year year after we two we started, we had a huge wildfire, the BC's largest wildfire, that burnt off a good portion of our study area. Mm-hmm. And we had a remote camera set up, um, cameras. Most of them got burned, but we had one that didn't, and uh, that camera was fascinating. It was partly melted, but the film survived. And we documented uh, mule deer, uh, black bear, uh, other animals, all heading east away from the fire. And then we documented the black stallion coming up to our camera and, and running away from the fire. And so after the fire, I did some, I walked um, many kilometers across the plateau through the burn, just, you know, observing um, what had happened. Uh, and if any animals were come back, I found horse tracks coming back into the burn in September after the fire was out. Yeah. And, but the next spring, we found that some of them had returned to the same meadows. But the uh, black stallion band we never really saw again, so we don't know what happened. And the bay, the other uh, chestnut or bay stallion band had totally disappeared. So I found what I think were their remains, where they, they the winter after the fire they had yarded up where, in deep snow where there was very little forage because the wildfire burnt off most of the dried grasses and sedges and. It looked like um, they had all starved to death and the wolves had cleaned up their kills. The 2017 Hansville fire that burnt off the north end of our study area, mm-hmm. um, we found that uh, the First Nations documented a band of 11 horses. That the fire was so fast that it, it caught, trapped them, and burned up a band of uh, 11 horses. And there's uh, not so nice pictures in a picture of that in my book. Yeah. Um, but the fires are a natural part of the ecosystem, even though they're currently more intense and more frequent because of global warming. Yeah. But it's the way that that ecosystem restores itself. So we found that a year or two after the wildfire, because of the nutrient recycling, from the, caused by the wildfire, there was a great resurgence of um, pine grass and sedges and you know, foods that the horses love. And, and uh, so what we found is um, 
where there's a, a burn, they'll they'll move back in a year or two later and actually thrive on the increased nutrient value and forage. And then about 10 to 15 years later, a lot of those areas will grow into thickets of lodgepole pine and lose their habitat value. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, it, it, so many fascinating things in the book. And, and you, you mentioned uh, the uh, climate crisis a moment ago. Um what what is the the um, I guess what sort of knowledge have you you've gained about uh, the global climate crisis from wild horses? I mean, there's something to learn there about. Um, I, I guess you you do see um, how they are keenly affected by it, right? Yeah. Well, you have to remember that these horses in their evolution in North America have survived many many changes in uh, climates during mm-hmm. the different ages. <laughs> Although they did go extinct after the last ice age, uh, as far as we know, 5,000 years ago. Um, so they're, they're very adaptable to, to a point. Um, the climate study I worked on with the Hunnigut team, because we did a, a climate habitat change uh, study, um, showed that, you know, there will be more grasslands uh, in the Chilcotin as a result of drying and climate change. And, of course, we'll get more extreme weather patterns, larger and bigger wildfires, uh, uh, more severe droughts, and probably, as we're experiencing in B.C., starting right now, more severe winters, you know, with the climate fluctuations. So at this point, um, I'm hoping that and praying that, you know, we'll be able to um, to slow down global warming enough that things won't progress so rapidly. And because um, we're on a on a pretty bad trajectory right now with putting too much carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I we own two electric vehicles and are trying to reduce our own carbon footprint. Just hope that politicians um, worldwide um, and societies get more on top of it. Um, so, but you know, it's not just horses; it's people. All of us are under under threat over the long term if we don't uh, slow this thing down. Indeed. Um, so, in terms of the future of the the wild horses in the Chilcotin. Um, you are optimistic as to, 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 I mean, I, I was going to ask you about what, what the greatest challenge is, and I guess it is, it is people, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah, the great, greatest challenge is, uh, is people who still shoot them. Yeah. Um, people who still regard them in the old settler culture way as, as uh, not belong on, on the land. You know, I've documented in my book where, um, a licensed BC guide outfitter um, actually came across with his trophy hunters, a band of wild horses, and they ambushed and shot the whole batch off and stuff. So, you know, climate change and other threats are there, but the biggest threat is people and the, and the uh, lobbying by the Cattlemen's Association to um, get rid of the horses and have culls and stuff, and, uh, and that's a bigger threat right now with the Alberta foothills horses than it is with the BC Chilcotin ones, at least for now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Wayne, this is not only a beautiful book, it's an important one. Um, it's, um, I'm enjoying it a great deal. Uh, congratulations on, on the many years it took to write it and, and uh, all the best. I so appreciate your time today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Joe. The book is called The Wild Horses of the Chilcotin, Their History and Future. It's uh, from Harbor Publishing. It's author Wayne McCrory. Join me on the, the blind from Hills, British Columbia. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.